My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the 39th official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And this week, I want to focus on the political, looking specifically at Vice President Joe Biden and his appearance on The Breakfast Club this past week, where he quipped at the end of his 18-minute interview, if you were still deciding between Biden or Trump, you ain't black. That statement catapulted social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, with people weighing in on both sides of the spectrum, some saying, relax, This was a joke said in jest. You need to loosen up and not take yourself or things too seriously. And then you have people on the other side of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum saying, wait a minute, this is offensive. Who are you to dictate what blackness is or is not? And it's just highly inappropriate for a presidential candidate to talk in these terms, especially when the whole goal on the Democratic side of this election is to rid ourselves of a president who says any and everything about any and everybody with no filter or no understanding of the ramifications of the comments. So you have people weighing in on either end of the spectrum. And I wanted to jump in and share my perspective. And I wanted to share my perspective, not so much to harp on what was said, but to really give you a contextual understanding of how we got up to this point where we have Donald Trump and Joe Biden as our last two options for president, what the Breakfast Club interview reveals, and what that can inform us about and teach us as we continue on this trudge along 2020, the year that will never end, the year that continues to amaze us with new and crazier news, and the year that just is unrelenting in terms of the content overload that we're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So again, how do we get here, what happened in the interview, and what it can tell us about the future. So let's start with how did we get here. If you watch TV shows like Game of Thrones, you'll know what it feels like to invest all of your time and energy into a show to get all the way to the season finale and to feel like, wait a minute, that felt rushed. Or wait a minute, they didn't close those loops. Or wait a minute, this was so anticlimactic. How do we get to this point? So so these things happen when you watch TV shows that attachment to the outcome and then sort of being deflated when you see how quickly it all transpired. But the reason why I talk about these television series is because I think that they are analogous to presidential primaries or uh, presidential elections where we're following something closely, particularly the primaries, and we're inevitably going to be disappointed uh, that it ended. Maybe your candidate didn't win or you didn't like how it transpired or it just felt anticlimactic. But I feel like those TV shows map onto the 2020 presidential election because it starts out with this amazing plot. We have this diverse field of candidates. We have young and old. We have moderates. We have progressives. We have race, we have so much going on. And people are so excited about the possibility of a newcomer or an outsider coming in and shaking things up or someone new carrying the mantle of the Democratic Party forward. And if you've been following that stream of thought, you you wouldn't be sort of crazy to think that things were potentially going to change this cycle, especially when you look at the first three contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, where the quintessential frontrunner Joe Biden is struggling. You have individuals who are winning, albeit in states that people are arguing are not representative of the Democratic Party. 
And so you head into South Carolina with um, a weekend front runner in Joe Biden who really needs a quick turnaround, quick fast, and in a hurry to save his chances at uh, securing the nomination. And so we get to South Carolina. We see black voters show up and show out for Joe Biden, give him a decisive win in every county. And he has the momentum going into Super Tuesday, so much so that many of the other candidates drop out quickly and endorse him. But as that's happening, you know, as we're settling on the fact that Joe Biden is the nominee, we're now also faced with this global pandemic where we have the world in the crisis, no testing, no PPE, uh, no one really following social distancing or, or not implementing those procedures in time where studies are showing thousands of lives could have been saved if we had only done it a week or two earlier. But you have this global pandemic coming into the fray. And it's knocking everything that we've ever imagined on its head in terms of progressive policy proposals. So when you talk about Medicare for all or healthcare being a right or health inequities plaguing this country, you know, prior to COVID, people were immune to this thinking or didn't want to really acknowledge it. But after COVID, you have people saying, well, wait a minute, why is my health insurance tied to my job? Or wait a minute, the government, although they took a long time and did it in a haphazard manner, they're able to send $1,200 to provide relief to individuals who need it, but they've been telling us we have no money or no budget for XYZ program. And then you have even a moderate like Joe Biden saying people should be able to get tested for COVID. And I'm not sure if he said treated, but there was some language around people getting tested and treated for free or at a subsidized cost. And so the global pandemic is now entering the fray too, where it's challenging our notions of what's possible and demanding big and bold ideas. So you have all of these things colliding, this diverse field that suddenly ends in endorsements and then COVID, and we're now left with these two people. And I think when going back to that notion of sort of the seven stages of grief, I think the difficulty that people are having right now is they're trying to grapple with the fact that unlike in 2008, where you had a candidate like Obama that inspired you and got you excited about hope and change you can believe in, what Biden feels like now is sort of an individual who is the safe choice. We saw post-Obama, the emergence of Trump. We saw Hillary's defeat as uh, the first woman president, potentially, even though she won the popular vote. And we have now in 2020, I think people operating out of whether it's pragmatism or practicality or fear, but operating under the assumption that Joe Biden is the safe choice and the best choice to defeat Trump. So we now have Joe Biden entering the fray as the front runner, not because of his plans or his policies, not because he necessarily excites us, but because people are uh, rightfully, or however you view it, afraid that any deviation will lead to a Trump re-election. So this election is not about your grand old policy proposals, but it's now about returning to normalcy and getting someone back in office who can restore the norms. I think this context is important because it shows the sentiments of individuals who are going into this 2020 election having to vote. It's not to say that uh, Joe Biden is inherently a terrible person, but it is to say that we have to be cognizant of the fact that he got to this point, not because of policies or proposals, but because people are literally afraid of losing and believe that he is the best choice and the safe choice in this climate. So if you take that in context with you, 
as we go into this Breakfast Club interview, you have people are still trying to overcome the fact that we came into this like that Game of Thrones series excited and maybe we felt like in Game of Thrones it was just a little too rushed or an anticlimactic finish or we just resorted back to what felt safe and not necessarily what felt bold or, or innovative. And so that historical context is coming with us as we go into this Breakfast Club interview. And immediately as I began to watch the interview, I have to be honest with you, I was a little taken aback by Joe Biden's tone and his demeanor. When he goes on Morning Joe, that was not the Joe Biden we saw you know, on The Breakfast Club. He came in a little more abrasive, a little more uh, performative in terms of his interaction with Charlemagne. Come on, man. You ain't black. This and like all of these different performative characteristics were coming into the fray. And I think it really boils down to a comfort that we sometimes give people that may not necessarily be warranted. And I think it goes all the way back to the 90s when we talked about Bill Clinton being our first black president, or even in the present day, when we look at how we invite so many people to the cookout because they can shimmy or stroll or because they did X, Y, or Z thing. And so they're now invited to the cookout and accepted into the black community. And I really do believe that those types of messaging can create a dynamic where people can get a little too comfortable to the point that you have them making comments like the one Joe Biden made um, in his Breakfast Club interview. But it can't just be that, right? It can't just be, oh, we're getting too comfortable and people feel they can say anything. I, I think it's bigger than that. And I think it really is rooted in, I think, a miscommunication or a misperception of Joe Biden's esteem in the black community. And hear me out on this point. If you listen to the Breakfast Club interview, Joe Biden starts talking about, oh, when I was in Delaware, I had 96% of the black vote. In this presidential primary, I had more of the black vote than Hillary did and than Obama did. And as he's saying this, it got me thinking, oh, he is equating his support from the black community over the years, and even acknowledging they brought him to the dance, they gave him the opportunity to be here. He's acknowledging that, but I think he's really viewing this from a lens of credibility to say, I put in the time, I've been supported by the black community, I'm a credible figure within the black community, so how dare you try to question my commitment to that community? I think that's what a credibility mindset gets you. It gets you someone that goes on the breakfast club and is confused and shocked by why Charlemagne is continuing to press and probe on issues as if he does not have the support of the black community. And I think that is the biggest disconnect when it comes to his perception. I think he's looking at it as if he's been there, he should have the support and no one should question him. But I think people are viewing it as, as Charlemagne noted in some follow-up interviews in a different way. It's not about credibility. It's about the fact that people sort of invested in you and you're now indebted to them with the response and the respect of policy proposals and an agenda that is responsive to their needs. And so I think that's truly the disconnect. If you're coming at it from a credibility landscape as Joe Biden is, you're going to scoff at any questions of why are you probing me? Are you really trying to question my record with black voters when I'm going against Trump? And, and in doing that, I think you miss the bigger picture. You miss Politics 101, which says that you need to spend as much time shoring up your base as you are trying to reach out to undecided voters. So you have to be just as energetic and engaged with the voters who catapulted you to success as you are trying to flip and swing voters in the coming election. 
And the inability to understand that I think is concerning because it's coming from this credibility view of, I am here, I'm part of this community, my name and my record, which people you know, question, but my name, my record should speak for itself. So I really do think that that's the disconnect. And if you look at the interview, I encourage you to go check it out. If you look at it, it really is much more understandable when you view it from that credibility lens that he is sort of coming on here thinking that he's going to have a conversation. Uh, but Charlemagne's actually drilling on, you know, who's your vice presidential pick? You know, people are saying they want to see X, Y, Z thing. And I really don't think Joe Biden was expecting that. But then, and looking at the fallout of the interview, I think my next point is centered around an annoyance and a frustration that I have with how people think about black voters. And I think it's extremely offensive if you, if you really step back and, and think about it. Because yes, Joe Biden was speaking in the context of, oh, if you're having trouble choosing between Biden and Trump, then you ain't black. But he missed the point. The point in Charlemagne or any other person questioning and probing Joe Biden on his record is not to suggest that we don't understand the stakes of this election. It's not to suggest that we would somehow jump to Trump or we're trying to compare Biden to Trump. That's not what we're doing. But I think that's frustrating when you see Democrats sort of try to throw that in your face, that if you somehow, like Charlemagne did, seek to question Joe Biden, you're somehow pro-Trump. And that's a problem. Why can't we hold a candidate accountable? Why is doing that an assumption that we are somehow pro-Trump? Are we supposed to walk on eggshells until November, not voicing any concerns out of fear of battering or bruising Joe Biden? That's not what an election is about. We are not stupid. We understand what's at stake. But here's the catch. If we don't speak up now, we're setting a tone and a precedent for when Joe Biden, if he wins, gets into office. So if we take this approach now of hush, hush, don't say anything, don't batter or bruise him, don't push him and probe him on an agenda, what do you think he's going to do when he gets to office? He's going to get to office with an understanding that he has great support amongst black voters and that they will, for the sake of the country, prioritize getting him into office at the expense of having their proposals or their desires met. Now, it's not to say that Joe Biden wouldn't sort of represent black constituents or that he wouldn't have a, a policy proposal. I know he has a lift every voice plan and other proposals. It's not to say that he wouldn't do any of that while he's in office, but it is to say that there is a value in probing and in holding elected officials accountable and in making your voice heard so that throughout the process, you know, if they are elected and they're grappling with trade-offs, they have you in the back of their mind, like, if I screw this group over, or if I go against a promise that I made, it's going to come back to bite me. But my fear is that the approach that people are pushing now, this approach of, ooh, don't say anything, hush, 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 please, 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 don't batter him, don't bruise him, we need to get rid of Trump, it eliminates what is so necessary in the political process, which is bargaining and allowing your proposals to be heard to know where you stand. This is not unreasonable. Bernie Sanders is doing this now, and the Biden campaign has rewarded that. There was reporting a couple of months ago that said that Bernie Sanders was holding on to his delegates so that when he got to the DNC convention, he would have influence and have seats at the tables when they're formulating the DNC platform and the underlying policies. So this practice of trying to build leverage to cash out on proposals that will benefit you and your community is what politics is all about. And my fear is that if we follow this democratic trope of, oh, any critique against Biden is somehow pro-Trump, we end up getting ultimately screwed in the long run because we've now set the tone and the precedent that we care so much about getting you to office and you don't even have to prioritize our plans. Just get into office 
and we'll deal with that later. And my concern with that approach is when those individuals do get into office, they may be more willing or, or less inclined to think twice about double-crossing this constituency because they know that no matter what they do based on our inaction or inability to speak throughout the electoral process, that no matter what they do, they likely won't be held accountable or suffer any repercussions. So that is my first stance on that democratic lens. You can critique Joe Biden and not be pro-Trump. And the, the insinuation is insulting to suggest that black voters or Democrats don't understand what's at stake. No, you can simultaneously understand what's at stake and still hold someone accountable. And to suggest that that's somehow pro-Trump, I think is ignorant and misses the entire point of electoral bargaining and continues to be the reason why when folks get into office, they can uh, see black voters as expendable because of this type of mentality and this belief that no matter what they say or do, we'll be back to support them. So that's the Democratic side. But what's also insulting is on the Republican side, you have Republicans trying to catapult off of this gap or whatever you want to call it on, on the part of Biden. And they're coming out in solidarity. Biden is a racist. Biden is this. Biden is that. You know, you shouldn't treat black people like this. And I think they think that we're maybe dumb to, to think that seeing Lindsey Graham or someone else post in solidarity is somehow going to make me think that he's now an advocate for, for me and for my beliefs and for, for what I stand for. But what's so fascinating and why we know to a certain extent this is faux outraged or over-dramatized outrage is the fact that when these very same individuals in the Republican Party saw Trump refer to good people on both sides in Charlottesville, uh, they were silent. When they heard him refer to shithole countries, silent. When he called Cap an SOB, they were silent. When he called Mexicans rapists, they were silent. And now they want me to believe that they stand in solidarity with me because of a gap that uh, Joe Biden made. And so I think, you know, on both sides, it's sort of funny to see how you have Democrats coming at you insinuating that any critique is a pro-Trump stance. And then you have Republicans thinking that this faux show of solidarity on this particular issue is somehow going to bring me into the fold. It just, I think, shows an inability to imagine uh, a, a sophisticated black voter who can see through the BS on both sides and, and still find a way to speak up for themselves. And so we went through the historical context. We went through the Breakfast Club interview and, and what it means you know, for us going forward, the need to speak up when you want to and allow your voice to be heard. And so the question then is, well, what's the solution? What can we expect going through 2020? And the first thing I will say is that we have to be prepared for voters to continue making demands. And it's crazy I have to say this because this is actually what politics is all about. But I want to remind you, you have to be prepared over the next you know few months for people in a presidential election cycle to continue to make demands to continue to hold Joe Biden accountable. I mean, we still have the vice presidential pick. We still have the policy platform at the convention. We still have people wanting to see progressive policies infused into the proposals that are put on by Biden. So don't be surprised going forward if we continue to see that. And instead of insinuating that we're trying to batter or bruise Biden, maybe look at it from a lens of a just a lay political person to say, it's about bargaining and it's about holding leaders accountable so that they represent your interests when they're elected. But then the second point, you know, when thinking about the future is just realizing that you shouldn't and you can't scare people into voting. 
Biden's biggest concern, it seems from that joke or whatever you want to call it, was that black voters or any dim voter was somehow going to choose Trump over him. And that was said in response to Charlemagne saying, oh, we have a long way to go until November. We'd love to have more conversations. So the fact that Charlemagne's trying to have more conversations led Biden to joke and say, if you're deciding between Trump and me, and I think that right there misses the point. No, Democratic voters are not trying to choose between you and Trump. They've already baked it into their minds that they're not going to support Trump. Instead, what he needs to be concerned about is black voters choosing between staying at home or voting for Biden. That's the real calculation, not if they're going to go um, and sort of go rogue and, and go support Trump. No, is they're going, are they going to stay home? And I think the way that you get in front of that is by creating policy proposals that are responsive to the needs of those voters to ensure that they're engaged. As I mentioned before, shoring up your base and those undecided voters simultaneously and not doing one at the expense of others. So realizing that you can't scare people into saying, vote blue no matter who, I don't care if he, elect, if he selects a tennis ball as his vice president, as some people have said, I'm gonna vote for him. I mean, that's fair and people understand the stakes, but trying to scare people is not gonna be an incentive to get the turnout we need. You have to give some people something to vote for and not merely as we saw in 2016 just something uh to vote against and then lastly my main point on the future is that we can't walk on eggshells and try to coddle candidates or protect them from critique or questioning i get it that anxieties are high and people want to get rid of trump but if 2016 taught us anything is that we can't take anything for granted and we can't assume that we have anything in the bag you have to give people something, as I mentioned before, to vote for rather than simply something to vote against. And I reject this continued practice of throwing in my face that I need to choose XYZ Dem or risk XYZ Republican taking over because that logic, if you think about it, will never end and it will continue to be thrown out there in 2024 and in 2028 and beyond. The two-party system keeps us in this lesser of two evils paradigm and for as long as we are in this system, it's our job to make our voices heard. If a second moderate establishment candidate on the Democratic side loses in the general election, there will be a war in the Democratic Party. Why not focus on making Biden a more responsive candidate, which will increase engagement and enthusiasm versus trying to silence people or use scare tactics to suppress their very real and valid concerns? I think that's the only way that you're going to get victory in November. It's not by silencing any critique or questioning of Joe Biden because the stakes are so high, but saying, yes, the stakes are high. And the way that we get across that finish line to victory is to engage voters, is to not take anyone for granted, and is to realize that we can't walk on eggshells and run scared because when you run scared, you're running to lose. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of The Riley Rant entitled Bracing for Biden in 2020. I hope that you enjoyed some of the takeaways just around how we got here, how to interpret the Breakfast Club interview, and also how we should think about how we should conduct ourselves going forward. Listen, folks, I get it. The stakes are high. People are afraid. We've seen what has happened over the last three and a half years, and, and even more so in light of this pandemic. So I don't want to undermine or delegitimize the concerns of people, but I also want to make sure that we are not so immobilized by this fear of a Trump re-election that we walk on eggshells, we coddle candidates, and we end up worse off. So thanks again for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. And remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. 
If it's Sunday, it's the Riley rant.